This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we want to discuss the life and work of America's first professional African-American poet, born not even an entire decade after the American Civil War. Uh, To be specific, he was born in 1872. The Emancipation Proclamation, even though it was uh, created in 1863, did not particularly free the slaves in reality until the end of the Civil War in 1865. Um, He was born in Dayton, Ohio, to Matilda Dunbar. His name was Paul Lawrence Dunbar. He would live only 33 years before dying of tuberculosis, but his influence is immediate and has endured well over 100 years, despite many obstacles, both uh, literary and political. What's unusual about Dunbar, um, in terms of his legacy, is that he has been honored and remembered in many different ways over the years. For example, uh, it wasn't too long after his death that the Paul Dunbar Opera was formed in his honor. You know, but switching gears, the uh, the first African-American hospital in Detroit in 1919 was named after him. That same year, a short movie was produced based on his life called The Scapegoat. In 1921, a full-length movie was made based on his book, The Sports of the Gods. And in L.A. in 1928, the uh, Dunbar Hotel opened and became a center for jazz culture. His childhood home in Dayton was preserved and became open to the public in 1938. And it is, by the way, the first official public monument honoring an African-American to ever be created. During World War II, the United States Navy commissioned a ship, the SS Paul Lawrence Dunbar. John D. Rockefeller founded the uh, Dunbar Bank to help upwardly mobile African-Americans in New York City, helping get mortgages for homes. Um, 
His name has been used all over this country to name elementary schools, middle schools, high schools. And uh, in 1942, a trade school in Chicago took his name. In 1975, he was the first African-American writer to appear on a U.S. postage stamp. That's a lot of stuff. I know. So if you haven't gotten a picture, uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar uh, has made a name for himself decade after decade during many eras that uh, did not elevate many African-Americans. He was a celebrity during his day and has maintained a very distinct place in American literature for over 100 years. Some of his most famous pieces, um, the ones we will discuss on the podcast today, are so famous most Americans have heard them referenced at least indirectly if they didn't know uh, the name Paul Lawrence Dunbar. You know, his career inspired literally thousands of young men and women who have identified with the problems that he faced and discussed. Man, what a legacy. (laughs) I know. Uh, And yet, on the other side, there are not many African-American writers that have been so controversial for so long, especially within their own community, within the African-American literary community. And there's a good reason for that. He's been accused, basically, uh, to summarize it, of, of having two voices or really not developing his own unique voice. He's been accused of code switching when he shouldn't. He's been accused of monetizing and perpetuating racial stereotypes. And yet, at the same time, when Jackie Robinson famously testified before Congress in 1968, he complained, and let me quote him, The magnificent poetry of Paul Lawrence Dunbar was not being taught next to that of Longfellow in American schools. And of course, Robinson was completely right. It wasn't being taught, and it should be. His work is notable, and it stands on its own. It speaks to issues of race, of course. He has many pieces that are specifically pieces of protest, of course. But that's not all they are. His work speaks on multiple layers, ranging from the personal to societal. The dilemmas he expresses are common to all humanity, and uh, they're universal, and they cross time. They cross culture. Dunbar's personal story is unique. It's remarkable. Clearly, you can tell from all those, you know, shout-outs. But like so many artists, there's a huge element of tragedy in his life. So it's worth telling the story of this brilliant man and discussing his two most famous works, We Wear the Mask, which is his best-known piece. But if we have time, uh, we'd like, I'd like to tackle the second most famous piece called Sympathy. Both of them are complex, and they both speak to personal issues as well as societal ones. Um, okay, well, I, I think the best way to start this story, uh, let's start before he was born. Okay. His father, Joshua Dunbar, escaped Kentucky via the Underground Railroad to Canada, only to return voluntarily during the Civil War to, to fight in the 55th Infantry Unit uh, for the Union Army. His mother, Matilda, was not freed until the emancipation. And, uh, she married Joshua, but their marriage did not work out. She divorced him and moved her children and herself back in with her mother. Uh, Joshua died when Paul was 13 years old. You know, uh, Matilda she was such a remarkable woman for so many reasons. Really, she kind of comes across to me as a modern woman. Uh, she saw the value in education, and she pursued it for herself but also for her gifted son. Uh, you know, she'd been raised on a plantation. She'd been denied an education. 
But she enrolled herself in night school and learned to read and write. She was dogmatic about Paul's education. He attended the 10th Street Elementary School, and he went all the way through Central High School, where he was the only African-American in his entire class. And, you know, uh, one fun fact about that is, is that Orville Wright... One of the inventors of the airplane. <laughs> now, we have to qualify that. There are people in Brazil who think another guy invented the airplane, but we're going to go <laughs> so with Orville. Dumont. Yes. Uh, anyway, Orville Wright and he were good friends in high school, and they actually collaborated on several projects, two being newspapers that Dunbar edited. Uh, one was for the white community, and another was for the African-American community. Well, and I think we need to mention, despite being the only African-American student in his class, he excelled. He was the top of the class. He was the editor of the school paper. He was the president of his class. He was on the debate team. He was a popular guy. He was literally everything you would want for a burgeoning scholar with all the things that you would want to put on a high school resume. He aspired to law school. He wanted to be a journalist. And if his life circumstances had been any different than what they were, that would have been the obvious next step. Uh, You know, but of course, his circumstances, um, neither racial or financial, were like his peers. And so those options weren't available to him. Um, After high school, uh, when his wealthy white friends went off to college, he stayed back. There was no money. He went looking for a writing job in Dayton, but there was not one available to him. In fact, no jobs for an educated African-American male were available to him. He took the only job anybody would offer him, and that was the job of being an elevator operator. You know, uh, there's a real sense to me that this is his most impressive moment in life because it's a moment of choice. I cannot even imagine, I don't know any of us could imagine how discouraging reality would have been in that situation. I mean, there's no role models. He's literally the first generation of freed African Americans. But what does that mean in this society that really is not equal? There's no place for equality. His novel, by the way, The Sports of the Gods, is exactly about this issue. I mean, we have no idea what he thought or, or who, if anyone, encouraged him. But we do know what he did in his free time during those years when he was working as a tele, uh, telephone operator, <laughs> elevator operator. Instead of sulking into defeat and quitting, which, you know, I might have been tempted to do, he made the most out of what I think would be one of the most mind-numbing jobs in the world. I would think so, too. And, and you know, there are not many buildings left that require human elevator operators, but um, I remember there was a kid in some older buildings. Yeah, I do too. I remember there was an elevator operator in the building where my dentist was when I was a kid, and I'd have to walk downtown. You know, I lived in Bellady's Lunchery, and I'd go to this older building, and there'd be a man sitting on a stool pushing buttons and operating the open and closed door handle. I remember thinking more than once, this has got to be the worst job. I mean, you never see the sun. You sit inside of the old building going up and down in a silver tiny box. (laughs) I mean, that's what he did. Except uh, while he was in that little box, he honed a craft. He paid attention to the different accents from visitors around the country. He listened to different political opinions. You know, he's invisible in there. He could hear the different slang phrases, different philosophies. He also read. 
he read a vast amount of, of, of writers. In his spare time, he wrote. You know, about a year into this, he gets a break. One of his high school teachers recommended him to speak at the Western Association of Writers. There was the meeting that year in Dayton, and it was his opportunity, and he was ready. When he got up to speak, he impressed the crowd so much about his speech and and his poetry that comments about his speech came out in the newspapers. This encouraged him, so he decided, okay, I'm going to self-publish a book of poetry, which I can't even imagine a (laughs) first-generation African-American doing. He had to come up with $125, which he did, and he sold his work for a dollar a copy. Now, that sounds expensive to me. Gary, is that a lot of money back then? Well, if you want to adjust for inflation, that was not cheap. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. But you know what? He sold out. His book sold out. And he got on the radar of various civil rights leaders of his day, including the great Frederick Douglass, who offered Dunbar a job to work in the Haitian Pavilion at the World's Columbian Exhibit in Chicago. Now, this is where things get a little controversial. Uh, From there, his career takes off. He gets identified by a big-time editor and influencer. But uh, I think we need to explain the way that Dunbar wrote, because he wrote in three different styles. There's some pieces that he writes in this very high, almost British-y style, he writes a Petrarchian sonnet about Frederick Douglass and, and those kinds of works that are very formal and very high level. Then he wrote a lot of works, the ones that we most recognize today, in standard English. According to Alice, his wife, uh, the pieces that are his most personal, he would write in standard English because that was his language. He spoke in standard English. Uh, but there are other pieces that he writes or that he wrote in African-American dialect as spoken by his parents and their generation on those slave plantations of the South. Well, of course, it seems obvious to me uh, why this might not be well received. I mean, this is the era of the minstrel show of blackface, um, of the intentional stereotyping of African-Americans as less intelligent and capable. And it's also an era where there is a deliberate attempt to romanticize the plantation experience, you know, which in its reality was nothing but raw, horrific human bondage. And so, uh, Christy, how can anyone claim writing in the dialect of the slave plantation is a good thing? I mean, especially coming from an African-American whose parents and relatives suffered tremendously at the hands of slavery. Well, and that pretty much is the controversy. Uh, But first of all, and I think it's obvious, even if you look at a small portion of of his writing, but certainly if you look at his entire body of work, that Dunbar is very much committed to the welfare of African Americans. This is not in question. Neither is his pride of African American achievement. So that goes without saying. Uh, Many of his poems, in fact, even some of the poems that are in dialect are serious, and they speak to the condition of slavery. He's making strong rhetorical comments. He does not minimize the slave experience in any way. African Americans, including Dunbar, not one generation after emancipation, are already fighting you know, Jim Crow laws. I know you know this better than me. And this process of disenfranchisement, the, the African American intellectual community was immediately on board with this. And he was 100% committed in demonstrating that African Americans were highly successful and highly literate. 
So if we take that as our first premise, uh, I think there is another way to look at his dialect poems as something other than demeaning. I would argue there is a valid and, in fact, interesting uh, perspective. Dunbar had studied, remember, he studied the use of dialect, not just in local peoples, but in written works, in the works of Robert Burns in Scotland. We've done featured him on the, the podcast. W.B. Yeats was publishing you know, poems in that traditional old Irish dialect. And there are regional writings in the U.S. that were publishing dialect close to him, specifically Indiana. So we have heard, he had heard all kinds of dialects and those elevators. He had read a lot of work written in dialect. And he was using this folk model of dialect to express and preserve the culture, the language, the emotions, and the heart of the African-Americans of his parents' generation. And it's important to me to think about the fact that no one before or since has ever captured the voice of that generation quite this way, like Dunbar has done. Um, It's really remarkable. The language of the African-American slave was the language of a people who had been held in silent, involuntary servitude for 90 years since the birth of the country. They'd never been heard, certainly not artistically. And he's giving them a literary voice, their voice, as they sounded, speaking from that, from their point of view. And I know he'd never been a slave, but his parents had. And his father particularly had bitter and awful stories that he shared with his son. His mom, she did, and we can see this, had several happy memories of family and community life. But for the most part, obviously, she grew up in a house of bondage. This is their voice, not just his parents' voice, but the recorded stories of these people. So there's a way of seeing his work, not only as an ethical thing to do, but an honoring thing to do, especially if you have the skills to do it well. And he did. He knew how to represent the cadence and their voices, the way they phrase things, the expressions that they used. He did it perfectly. Uh, now, unfortunately, I or you, we cannot effectively do justice to reading these dialect works on the podcast or, you know, we would try When we read them, we can sound clumsy and, and, you know, maybe even disrespectful. We we mispronounce and misrepresent the language. But when they're performed properly, they're brilliant and they're beautiful. In fact, I encourage anyone to listen to them. In 2014, a woman by the name of Dr. Manita Daniel Cox from the University of Dayton did a tremendous service by archiving, reproducing, and producing, or preserving, really, Dunbar's work, including these pieces done in dialect, they're recorded. And anyone, I would encourage you to Google the phrase Dunbar Music Archive. It'll come right up. Uh, and they're, they're written out as well as performed by a professional reader who does do justice to the language. And, and they are very beautiful. Uh, I'll try to remember, actually, we could put a link up on to the listening guide and on the website to set that up. Well, uh, you know, to take the other side of the argument for a moment. <laughs> okay. The controversy is further complicated by the detail that these dialect poems were the ones that Dunbar was able to monetize most successfully during his lifetime. White America uh, came out in droves to listen to this young, eloquent black man perform these 
original works, and I'm not, I'm not sure they shared all the cultural appreciation and respect that you are giving to them. <laughs> In fact, white Europe did the same thing. Um, historically, you have to remember that this is the same era where blackface was beginning to emerge, as well as the minstrel tradition uh, in general. And many white Americans were trying to rewrite American history to suggest that slave life hadn't been that bad and the atrocities referenced in the slave narratives um, around plantation life were the exceptions and not the rules. I understand that, uh, and that's been the criticism, but the Dunbar's poetry and dialect expresses compassion for the sufferings of these people. It was grounded in real experiences that he heard firsthand. He displays incredible understanding of their suffering. Not all of them, but many of them are protest poems. Um, if you just want to Google one, look up A Little Christmas Basket. I mean, he's literally chastising uh, white people for talking about Christmas without showing Christmas charity. Well, the famous and influential African-American intellectual W.E.B. Du Bois um, talked about this challenge of the African-American artist specifically. He called it the duality of black life, um, a double consciousness of two cultures, one black and one white existing within a single African-American body and something that must be integrated constructively for an African-American writer to be successful. Yeah, you know, we see that through all the African-American writers. You know, some of them lean more one direction, speaking heavily to one side of their heritage. Others uh, lean to the other. But the criticism of Dunbar is that he's trying to have it both ways. He literally wrote in both styles. So... Half of his writing is in this high art style that looks very European, or at least in standard English. But then over 50%, the ones that he's performing uh, are tales from plantation life. And I might add a life that wasn't his. Well, although he did not live that plantation experience himself, uh, he definitely experienced discrimination and racial barriers. And as we get closer uh, to those celebrated Harlem Renaissance writers, the uh, consensus of the African-American intellectual and artistic community was that this dialect thing was not the language of liberation, <laughs> not the language of civil rights that was going to bring true equality to the average African-American citizen. Well, of course, I completely agree. And, you know, had Dunbar lived past the age of 33, you know, who knows how he would have weighed in on this argument or how his career would have even developed over the years. Alice Dunbar, his wife, after his death, said that his personal poems that were not written in dialect, uh, and by the way, those are the ones that are the most anthologized uh, and are famous, are, you know, some of the most special ones. But And they're the ones that... Uh, we're going to talk about. And I also want to talk about his marriage to Alice, uh, if we have time. <laughs> okay, that sounds like a plan. So let's start. Let's read, which is likely his most famous poem, titled, We Wear the Mask. We wear the mask that grins and lies, that hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile, with torn and bleeding hearts we smile, and mouth with myriad subtleties. Why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. We smile, but, O oh, great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but, O oh, the clay is vile beneath our feet and along the mile. But let the world dream otherwise, we wear the mask. It's a short poem, and when we read the poem, of course, when you read the poem, 
any poem, you just read it first real quick to, to get the overview. And, and the first thing and perhaps the easiest thing to notice is the form. Uh, sometimes it's hard to visualize all the images and meanings can be tricky. There could be uh, irony, but the form is easy to see. And so when we look at this one, we notice that it's in a very fixed rhyme scheme. A, B, B, A. That means there's two rhymes, the A rhyme and the B rhyme. A, B, B, and then there's this refrain. A, A, B, B, A, R. So it's very simple. But what does that mean? Who cares that there's these rhymes? <laughs> I know. I couldn't spot them. But. You know, sounds never create meaning. A rhyme doesn't mean anything in and of itself. And a rhyme scheme means nothing. But what it can do, it can support or enhance the meaning of the words. So the words have meaning, and then the sound kind of supports it. In this case, this poem is written in a traditional closed form pattern. What's a closed form pattern? It means it's a style that somebody else has created. We've heard of a sonnet. Sonnet is a 14 lines of rhyming iambic pentameter. Well, this is a different form. It's called a rondo. It's traditionally French. The word rondo means round. Originally in medieval France, court musicians would use this pattern for their folk songs. But these folk songs that were performed for the higher elites were happy songs. And they're about love, changing of the seasons, stuff like that. It wasn't normal. In fact, you wouldn't use a rondo format for a funeral or a sad song or anything like that. So what does the choice of form mean? Why does it matter? It, the form doesn't create the meaning, but it supports it. So if you know that that's what a rondo is, that's the context of when it would be used, it makes us understand a little bit more uh, about the words in the poem. Well, you know, the idea of masks is something we are uh, really more familiar with than probably any other generation. <laughs> so true. You know, many of us are still grimacing a little when we hear the word mask. and <laughs> uh, It conjures some scary images of frightened people huddling in lines at grocery stores, scrounging for toilet paper, you know, that was unavailable on the shelves. And uh, during the 2021 school year, like most everyone around the world, we wore masks in our school and we went back to in-person instruction. I'll never forget the year after we wore masks. I had students coming to my class that I had taught for the entire previous year and I didn't recognize them. Mm -hmm. They'd say, hello, Mr. Shriver, and I'd ask them who they were and they would say, I had you last year and I'd have to apologize. And they just didn't look the same without their masks. Well, of course, I had the same thing happen. And which is an interesting thing to think about when you think about the first stanza. So having that in mind, knowing what we know about the form, having this image of what a mask is, let's listen to the words again. We wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. You know, I taught this poem in class this morning as, and as a way to illustrate what I was talking about, I took one of our old surgical COVID masks and I painted a grin on it with a Sharpie. Uh, I should take a picture and post it, but I think you can understand the image. The grin is drawn on the mask and it's not a reflection of what's going on inside. You can't see it. Even our cheeks are covered. The grin expresses happiness, but a grin on a mask expresses nothing. <laughs> I mean, when a mask is on, you can't tell what a person is feeling. It hides everything. 
It doesn't conceal our eyes, but it shades them, which is an interesting turn of phrase there. This debt we pay to human guile, with torn and bleeding hearts we smile, and mouth with myriad subtleties. You know, the word guile, it's an archaic word. We don't use that word anymore. It means deception. Should we bring it back? (laughs) Well, you know, I have a memory of it. When I was a little girl, my mom would make me memorize Bible verses. And one of the very first verses I ever learned was out of the book of Psalms. uh, And it says, keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. Meaning, you know, don't don't deceive others with your words. Because guile means to deceive. But here, unlike, you know, the biblical text, Dunbar is saying, but we have to. We have to deceive. We have to wear a mask to function in society. He's not blaming anyone really for deception, but he's saying we're forced to do it. Our heart is torn and bleeding, but we smile. What about that last line, uh, and mouth with myriad subtleties? What does that mean? And you also said the rhyme scheme was A-A-B-B-A, but the word subtleties doesn't rhyme with lies and eyes. Good question and good observation. (laughs) Remember, again, sound never creates meaning, but sound effects support meaning, and that's a great example. Subtleties. If you look at the, how it's spelled, it almost looks like it should rhyme with lies. So you could say subtle ties, you know, but it doesn't. It only half fits. It's a forced fit. You can make it fit, but it's uncomfortable. Again, supporting the idea of how it feels to live in this mask condition. What he wants to mean with these words, you have to force ourselves to fit in this behavior. Mouth words. You can't voice words. You can't say things. You can mouth things subtly to express your true emotions. The word myriad means many, many subtleties, but you better not say them. You can mouth them. Uh, We just have to show a little bit about what's going on inside. He goes on to say, not only must we be subtle because of human guile, But we want to hide behind the mask. Look at that next line. Why should the world be overwise? Now, that word overwise is hyphenated. Uh, He's not trying to say we're wiser than we should be. This is kind of a made-up word. He's saying, why should the world know what's going on inside of me? Why should I let them know what's going on inside of me? And we can think of it this way. Let's say, for example, uh, Gary, you're a student. At my school, you've had a bad day. Your girlfriend broke up with you before school. You're upset. You go to first period. Someone says something. You blow up. You get in trouble. Go to the office. Then you lose your lunch money. You're starving. (laughs) You come into class. You don't necessarily like this class. Your mind's in a thousand places. The teacher looks at you. You barely know her. You put on a a fake smile. And she says, Gary, how's your day going? What are you likely to say? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess I could say I'm going to smile and just say fine. (laughs) Of course you are. Uh, But why would you just say that? Well, because I don't want you in my business. You you haven't earned that right. It's not yours yours to know. (laughs) Exactly. Why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? 
He feels strongly. He says nay. No, like no way. Heck no. That nay is set apart with commas. And commas slow down how we say things. They think they make things more emphatic. Then there's another space because he spaces his out and it's really in the middle of the page if you were going to put this all on one page. We wear the mask, kind of saying it like that. It's the third time he's used the phrase. It's the title. He started the first line. And now again, obviously, we repeat things that are important. We set things apart that are important and emotional. And this refrain is set apart with spaces. And there's a period after the word mask. It's the central idea of the poem, which makes us look at it more seriously and begs the question, well, who's the speaker in the poem? Uh, obviously, I would suggest it would be Dunbar. I mean, he's the author, and it's in the first person. Exactly. Except he doesn't say, I wear the mask. <laughs> and he doesn't even say African Americans wear masks. He says, we, which is an important thing to notice. Sometimes when we know something about a writer's life, we try to make assumptions about what they mean. I mean, I do it all the time. Uh, but looking at a writer's past helps us understand their worldview, and it's interesting to understand the poem. But unlike many of his dialect poems, you know, Dunbar's gone to a bit of trouble to erase the cultural context here. This is a universal poem. Uh, students love this poem. And today, you know, when we were talking about it, I asked some, I asked all the students to write out for me a line about how they feel about it. And this is a couple of quotes that kids said. This poem applies to modern people because everyone will always have to put on a mask, especially teenagers. This poem makes them feel understood. They hide their feelings just like Dunbar did because it's not safe. We too hide our pain and try to fake what we have going on. A lot of students wake up and become someone they are not. A kid wrote that. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I have students that have told me they liked actually wearing masks and uh, know people who still do wear masks. And it has nothing to do with COVID-19 or germs. I mean, they've used COVID as an excuse, but really they just want to hide. Sure. I mean, I think that's probably true uh, for a lot of people in a lot of different situations, which brings us to this last stanza. We smile, but... O oh, great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but oh, the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile. But let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. You know, back to that class today, I had a student raise her hand, and, and she volunteered an interpretation of this last section, and her name's Anna, and she said, "Miss Driver, I'd like to comment on this last stanza from the perspective of a religious person, because she's a Christian, and she identified with that. Uh, she said, if you notice, this last stanza changes points of view. It's not in the first person plural, shifts to the second person. The word the is not the word the, it doesn't have an extra e, it means you in old English, but she was saying this, the last stanza is a prayer. And she says, sometimes as a religious person, you have things going on in your life that are just too difficult to share with anyone around you. And she said, in those times, if you're a person of faith, you can go to God and cry out to him and tell him all your pains and problems. And there's great relief in being able to do that. 
of course, since uh, we do know something about the problems Dunbar faced with racial injustice, for one, but also with disease, anger management problems, alcohol, and eventually uh, marital issues. Uh, as a celebrity, it's easy to understand why he felt the need to speak of any of these issues before God. Well, he says, the clay is vile beneath our feet. Vile means terrible. It means disgusting. The clay he's talking about, likely a dirt road beneath his feet. At least it seems that's what he means because he immediately says, long the mile. The road is dirty, gross, and long, but let the world dream otherwise. I want to point out that he also yet uses the word sing here. Sing, well, that's a word we associate with the arts. Musicians sing. Some would say if you're a real musician, you're compelled to sing. You, you have to express yourself artistically. And, of course, Dunbar is an artist. So is he speaking uh, for African Americans here? Is he speaking for artists here? Is he speaking for young people like Anna here? Is he speaking to people of faith here? I mean, the answer is yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. That's what I mean when I say the poetry of Dunbar has all these layers of complexity. They can be interpreted in many different ways, politically, culturally, socially, personally. I mean, many writers of the years have understood this expression, we wear the mask. You know, Dunbar wrote We Wear the Mask in 1895. Uh, Four short years later, he would be diagnosed with tuberculosis, which was the dreaded killer of his day. Uh, We don't know which poems exactly, but many of his poems were written and performed with the knowledge that he was dying and that he was dying quickly. And yet, off he goes around the world, speaking, reading, writing, singing, to use the language of his poem, and making a living as an artist, very much living the experience of wearing a mask. Which brings me to his relationship with Alice Ruth Moore. You know, Alice was 19 and Paul was 22. He was still working as that elevator operator. She was a school teacher from New Orleans, but she was a published author. Dunbar, in April of 1895, the year he wrote this poem, wrote her... And he sent her some of her his poetry. It took weeks, but he finally got a response. And this is what she said in his letter, in her letter back to him. Your letter was handed to me at a singularly inopportune moment. The house was on fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's pretty understated. Exactly. You know, their relationship unfolded as a correspondence. And to me, it reminds me of the, well, they're the American equivalent of Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning to some degree. There are well over 500 letters preserved between these two. They wrote for over two years before ever meeting in person. And at one point, Paul breaks down. I love you and have loved you since the first time that I saw your picture and read your story. You were the sudden realization of an ideal. (laughs) That's (laughs) That's a great line. I know. In 1897, two years after they'd started writing, they have a chance to meet. Alice's family's moved to New Orleans. I mean, she's moved from New Orleans to Boston. It's February. And Dunbar is having a farewell party in New York City because he's on his way to England where he will be performing his work. Alice ran off from home and showed up at this party. Dunbar, at the party, proposed. (laughs) Oh, my. And she said, yes. And on that boat to Europe, 
he writes his mom to tell her about it. He says this. Alice Ruth Moore ran off from Boston and came to, t- to New York to see me off. Now, don't laugh, but Alice and I are engaged. You know this is what I have longed for. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when Dunbar got back from Europe, he was off to a job to work at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. That's an upgrade from the elevator days where he lived with his mother. At this point, he's famous, but he's heavily in debt. So, you know, his wealth is not secure. Uh, But he and Alice want to get married. Uh, She also has school loans. She's being sued. Uh, But more importantly than that, her family does not like the idea. They do not approve of this marriage. Alice's mom, this cracks me up, wrote her future son-in-law and she said this, you are a perfect stranger to us. I think both of you should think this things over again more seriously. <laughs> I can see myself writing that. Which, of course, they did not. <laughs> they eloped, and Alice moved in with Paul and his mother. Hmm. Um, you know, sometimes that kind of thing doesn't work so well. <laughs> no, and this would be an example of when it did not. <laughs> Alice would say later uh, to one of Dunbar's biographers that there just wasn't room for two Mrs. Dunbar's and Matilda Resenator. Their marriage was never good to the point where we see Dunbar moved out and to use his words, uh, he had to put on his mask. He said to her in a letter after one of uh, the episodes where he moved out, he said, I have not told there is any trouble between us. I have put on a brave front here, and I don't think anything is suspected. You know, these letters, there's a lot of letters between their multiple separations as well. Uh, You get the idea, at least I get the idea, that they do love each other, but they're just problems. At one point, we see Alice writing this. I hope you and mother will have a taste of your old happy life while I am gone. When you wish me back, dear, tell me and I will come. (laughs) Well, you know, well, let's just be honest. Uh, As irritating as Matilda likely was, she was not the biggest problem. No, you're right. Uh, The alcohol addiction was. I mean, he started drinking heavily to his credit on the advice of his doctor, who told him it would help his tuberculosis. Obviously, people out there, that is bad advice. Don't do that. (laughs) Uh, You know, they were living together. He he was also told to go to Colorado because of the weather, and and Alice moves out with them. And she loved the Rockies and, and has some good memories about nursing him in those days, but it wasn't sustainable. He physically abused her to the point where she left him for good. Uh, She even found out he was dead by reading it in the newspaper. This shocked her and left her extremely upset. They were never divorced. They were just separated. She had asked to be kept informed. Which brings me to the last poem uh, we have time to read today. It's another very famous poem that's worth our, our attention called Sympathy. For sure, it's a protest poem. It speaks to racial injustice, but just like the one we read, it doesn't only speak to racial injustice, it speaks to more than that. Racial injustice in this poem is a cage, but it is not the only cage. Recently, I watched a YouTube man who had been a victim of addiction, and he read this poem about this bird in the cage, and this bird who we're going to see commits self-harm to itself, and he identified it with his life perfectly. 
He said he knew why the cage bird sung. He knew why the cage bird inflicted self-harm. This poem spoke to him and for him. Dunbar is an artist who spoke to his generation about the issues of his generation, and that makes him historically interesting and historically important. But I suggest that is not him entirely. Dunbar speaks to all humankind. He speaks to the human condition as a whole in his poetry that was written in his in dialect, in his poetry that was written in high English, and his poetry that was written in standard English. So as we move to close out today, uh, Gary, would you mind reading the poem that moved Maya Angelou and perhaps is his second or maybe even more famous piece. This poem is titled Sympathy. I know what the cage bird feels, alas, when the sun is bright on the upland slopes, when the wind stirs soft through the springing grass and the river flows like a stream of glass, when the first bird sings and the first bud opes and the faint perfume from its chalice steals, I know what the cage bird feels. I know why the cage bird beats his wing till its blood is red on the cruel bars, for he must fly back to his perch and cling when he fain would be on the bow a swing, and a pain still throbs in the old, old scars, and they pulse again with a keener sting. I know why he beats his wing. I know why the cage bird sings, ah me, when his wing is bruised and his bosom sore, when he beats his bars and he would be free, is not a carol of joy or glee, but a prayer that he sends from his heart's deep core, but a plea that upward to heaven he flings. I know why the cage bird sings. Well, there it is. You know, we don't have time to analyze it, but it's worth reading more than once, and I encourage everyone to do so. Why does that cage bird sing? When we work, look at a, you know, a singing Tweety bird singing in a cage, from our position outside, we just assume it's a happy bird. But Dunbar is asking us to think again. Maybe that birdie is not singing a carol of joy or glee. And maybe we should revisit how we view all people, no matter what their presentation. It's called sympathy. May we feel sympathy. May we all realize many of us are caged by something. And may we embrace the idea as a society, as a friend, and as an individual that we can work towards freeing those little birdies out of whatever cruel cage they're in. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our discussion of America's first professional African-American poet. If you did, please support us by texting an episode to a friend. Uh, tell your friend to listen in. If you're a teacher, have your students listen and then discuss this great man. Uh, as always, look for us at howtolovelitpodcast.com. Find us on social media. And, of course, if you're feeling super generous, purchase merchandise um, or make a donation. Uh, it's when you share that we grow. Peace out.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.